0: So, Luke chapter 7. Quite a familiar story, I think, of the centurion and his faith. I wonder if the name Oscar Schindler means anything to you. Oscar Schindler. Schindler. Schindler's List, absolutely. Made, made famous by uh, the film that Steven Spielberg uh, directed some years ago. Oscar Schindler was a Czech citizen born in Moravia I had to do a little bit of kind of digging around I didn't know where Moravia was but it's kind of in the middle of Europe and uh, he was he was a businessman actually in the 30s to be fair he was a bit of an opportunist I've not seen the film and maybe this is expanded a little bit in the film He actually made money out of all that was going on in the war. He profited from the war effort. He was a member of the Nazi party. And yet, he was a friend of the Jews, whom Hitler wanted to see exterminated. He saved over a thousand men and women from the death camp of Auschwitz. He was in many, many ways a very imperfect man with perhaps questionable motivations at times. But he was also a man who was a friend of the Jews who were being oppressed and murdered. He was a Gentile. A non Jew who sought to save those Jews that were in peril. I guess I see a parallel between Oscar Schindler and the centurion here in chapter 7 of Luke. And what I'd love us to do this morning is three things with these ten verses. First, I'd love us just to have a look. What do we learn about the centurion? A friend of the Jews. Then I'd like us to look at Jesus' reaction to this encounter. And then thirdly, I'd like us to look at, well, what can we learn? Particularly learn for sharing our faith from how Jesus encountered this situation. Because actually, in Luke's account, the, the amazing thing is, and it's kind of obvious and yet it only jumped out at me as I sat on this passage this week, Jesus doesn't even meet the centurion in this passage. He does in, in, in Matthew's, uh, Ma- Matthew's account of it in, in chapter 8 of Matthew. But here, Luke's angle on this picks up that actually the centurion never comes to Jesus himself. And yet, there is so much we can learn about him. Six things, in fact, that we can learn about this centurion. So let's dive into that first thing, looking at the centurion and what he uh, tells us about himself and and what we can learn from him. First of all, it seems that he was a God-fearing Gentile. He had engaged with the people that he was tasked to rule. He was a Roman soldier. The Romans were the enemies of the Jews. They were the occupying force, if you like, and the Jews resented that occupation. And yet here was a man who loved that nation, who enabled a synagogue to be built in Capernaum. A synagogue which has been uncovered and and archaeologically discovered. Kind of brings alive this guy enabled that to happen. And he would only have done that if he had a sense of who God's people were and a desire to respond in a God-fearing way. But let's make no mistake, that was unusual. Unusual. That would have been a pretty strange experience. Thinking about the derby match this afternoon, Spurs against Arsenal. No love lost between those two teams. It would be like a Spurs fan investing in an Arsenal training academy. Wouldn't happen ordinarily. It would have been like Oscar Schindler. A Nazi. Wanting to spare the lives of Jews. He was a God-fearing Gentile. Secondly, because of his conduct, he was held in very high regard by the Jewish community. We see this in in verses 4 and 5, that the elders would run an errand for him. It's kind of surprising enough because I guess they could have been forced to do that because he was a centurion and and maybe he could have actually twisted their arm. But it doesn't sound like it when you read what they say about him. This man deserves to have you do this, Jesus. Because he loves our nation and he's built our synagogue. So here's a group of, of, of Jewish elders for whom a relationship with a Gentile meant defilement, made, meant they be, became unclean, and yet here they are going and entreating Jesus to do as the centurion asks. That's pretty amazing. Something of an aside, but, but still worth mentioning. Verse 2, this man clearly cared for his servant. He highly valued him, and he wanted to see him healed. Now, I don't think that was just about self-interest. It seems to me that if you highly value someone, that's not just about them doing your dirty work for you. But then it gets even more striking. He's a God-fearing Gentile, highly regarded by the Jews, cared for his servant. But here's a big one. Number four. He was actually a very humble man. As I've just read, the Jewish elders say of him that he's worthy of Jesus' help because of his noble deeds, his apparent integrity and his sincerity. But... Actually, the very fact that he asks others to seek Jesus' help points to a certain humility. And then if you look in verses 6 and 7, that kind of confirms it. Jesus was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve... To have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. Great humility in what he says. Jesus, you might notice, is actually prepared to go to a Gentile's house to, 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 to accede to his request. Jesus is prepared to be made unclean, not only by going into a Gentile's house, but potentially to encounter a corpse. Jesus is on the way and this guy says, "Yeah, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, to, to, to be prepared to, to defile yourself. So he doesn't stand on the kind of Dignity and worth that the, the Jewish elders very kindly accord to him, he said, Uh uh, I'm not worthy. I am not worthy to even approach you, Lord. Fifth thing you can notice about him, alongside his humility, is that he recognizes authority and he respects Jesus' authority. Verse 8, I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. He's speaking to Jesus, he's giving a message to Jesus, saying, I know that you have authority. And actually, I'm prepared to bow to your authority. That's a pretty risky thing for a Roman centurion to do. To bow to the authority of a Jewish teacher who actually is, is, is kind of a little bit edgy, is, is kind of out there. Not even the Jewish establishment are particularly sure about him. In fact, they're pretty sure that he's dodgy. But here, this centurion is saying, I'm prepared to bow to your authority. I see your authority. I think that's critical for us to hear. I wonder whether unwittingly or intentionally we often think that actually God needs to fit into our scheme. God needs to fit into our framework. Because we have the authority and, well, he can come in and do that bit if he likes, but that's, that's the way it is. And we create barriers for, for God's authority sometimes particularly when God's authority in Scripture seems to counter what the world would be saying. Then we kind of think, well, hmm. Maybe we just need to do a bit of a body swerve around that. But no, we need to submit to God's authority and to hear what he's saying to us and hear the centurion recognizes Jesus' authority. And number six, the most important thing we can recognize about this dear gentleman is that he had faith. Faith in Jesus. Right from verse three, where he hears of Jesus and he sends for elders to to come and heal his servant, he's expressing his faith in Jesus, that Jesus has authority over sickness and even death. He's never met the man, but he's heard about him and he recognizes in him who he is. Carries on, verse 7 about this? Just say the word. How about that for faith? He doesn't even want Jesus to come and be with the servant. How much easier would we find it if Jesus was sat right here in this room? We'd love it, wouldn't we? Because it would be so much easier to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, please would you? But he is here in spirit. And we need to acknowledge that in faith. Let's just dwell for a moment on this notion of faith, because I think that's key to this passage. Dear friend of mine sent me seven statements about faith this week that I just wanted to read to you, because I think they're terribly helpful. As we look at the faith of this centurion, Here's seven things about faith. Number one, faith is the sixth sense, which enables us to grasp the invisible but real spiritual realm. That centurion had got that. He understood that there was something going on with this Jesus, that he was who he said he was. So faith enables us to grasp the invisible and yet very real spiritual realm. Faith is the open hand, number two, by which we take what God is offering us in his grace. Forgive me, Lord. Allow me to come into your presence. Help me to serve you. Faith holds out an open hand to receive what God is offering in his grace. Number three, faith is confidence in a God who is absolutely trustworthy and utterly reliable. Faith is confidence in a God who is absolutely trustworthy and utterly reliable. Do you need to be relying on God this week. Number four, faith is willing to accept what it cannot understand. We are intelligent beings. God has made us intelligent beings. He's given us inquiring minds. He's enabled us to find out so much stuff about our world and yet there are things that we cannot understand about God and his workings and his kingdom and we have to say Lord I trust you number five faith is not dependent on circumstances faith is not dependent on on circumstances yes we can be we can be blowed and we can be we can be encouraged we can be discouraged but actually faith is about saying yet I will believe that you are God number six faith is ever discovering what God is able to do in the face of all opposition and difficulties. It's seeing God even in the midst of the most stinking mire. It's seeing God in the midst of a wonderful opportunity. And it's walking with him. Number seven, faith's chief occupation is obtaining the promises of God. Faith's chief occupation is not making my life a little bit more comfortable and a little bit more respectable, but it's actually about focusing on the promises of God, who he is and what he wants to do with us in our lives. Those are some quite big, challenging statements about faith just to remind you if you if you didn't quite get them steve wonderfully uh, and, and and just faithfully puts these sermons on the website every week do listen to them if you need to just go back through something and you want to kind of phone me up and say what did you mean by that and i'll try and remember to maybe put these on the news part of the website as, as just seven things that we can have a look at but i think they're very challenging and very helpful statements about faith <coughs> Here is a man of faith. Faith is God-focused. It's not me-focused. And faith is at the heart of this story. So that's a centurion. What about Jesus' reaction to the centurion, that he doesn't actually even meet? Well, actually, one of the most important things that Jesus does is he he focuses on the centurion's faith in verse 9. What does he say? I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. That's a pretty significant statement. When you think about it, in Hebrews 11... The writer to the Hebrews lists Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and all the people of Israel and Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel. These are people of faith. And Jesus is saying, I haven't seen that kind of faith. That's pretty challenging. But it's also pretty encouraging that the centurion... It's expressing that kind of faith. Jesus wants those who are around him to get just who he is and the authority that he has. And so Jesus' reaction to, to the man's faith is very, very affirming, saying, yes this is what I want to see. And actually in that reaction to that faith is also a challenge to those that were listening to say that yes, sincerity, religious devotion, moral decency, all of those things are good and you can maybe big the man up for having all of those things but they are not a replacement for faith in Jesus. that would have ticked a few people off. Because those things are good, but they don't replace faith in Jesus. And he wanted the people that were listening to hear that and see that they needed to turn to Jesus. And in Jesus' reaction, as well as focusing on the centurion's faith and the challenge to those that maybe didn't recognise him, there's also an encouragement. Maybe this was felt more by the non-Jews, by the Gentiles, that actually Jesus didn't just come for the people of Israel, but he came for all nations, to all who would believe in him. He was coming to die. And to rise again for you, for me. No matter what we or others might think of us, Jesus came for us. And there's an encouragement in that. Because perhaps we don't really feel all that worthy of Jesus' attention and love but he came for you and for me so it's a pretty amazing encounter with somebody that he doesn't actually even manage to speak to I don't know what what the the elders of the Jews must have made of this. I don't know what the centurion's friends who came to Jesus must have made of this. We haven't got time to begin to to think about them this morning. Because what I want us to do thirdly this morning, having looked at the centurion, having looked at Jesus' reaction to the centurion and his faith, is to think about, well, what can we learn from this encounter? How can we be challenged or built up or enabled, particularly, to share the good news of Jesus with others? Well, there are two things that are perhaps new and two things I've already alluded to. First thing, Jesus saw that the centurion was a man made in God's image. First and foremost, he was a man made in the image of God. His ethnicity, his background, his actions, those didn't cloud the fact that Jesus saw the beauty of a man made in his image. And I think we need to ask God's help to see people as people made in God's image. We need to ask God for a heart of compassion for people, particularly if it's not an easy thing to achieve to be compassionate for a particular person. But we need to see through the arrogance or the brusqueness or the nastiness or the immorality or the whatever but confronts us with people. And remember that each person that we encounter is made in the image of God. So let's pray that we see people as Jesus sees them, as we seek to build relationship and walk alongside people. second thing, actually I've alluded to this as well, the gospel is for everybody. It's not just for people like us, but it's for everybody who will hear and receive. So don't be shy about who you might share the gospel with. I reckon I'd find it pretty scary to share the gospel with a bloke like Angus Buchan, burly kind of farming guy who's kind of rough and tough and hard I'm not particularly rough and tough and hard but the gospel is for every person that we meet and maybe Jesus will use us if we let him to just bring a little bit of that good news into their lives might not be that we get to sit down and talk through the entire content of the good news of Jesus, but maybe it'll be in our reaction. Maybe it'll be just in two or three words. Maybe it'll be in saying, well, actually, I was at church on Sunday and this is what I was doing. I said, really, church? What? What's that all about then? Isn't that for kind of boring people? No, it's not. Amen. Amen. <laughs> But that might be it, a simple conversation that doesn't feel like it goes any further but begins to sow a seed that helps to continue with the way we live our lives. And alongside that, number three, what we did before we came to this passage, interceding for others, not just for their health and well-being but for their eternal salvation. So as we drive to work, as we drive to uh, a club, as we drive to a friend's house, as we go home, may we be bringing the people that we know and meet and love and struggle with and don't really love, may we be bringing them before the living God and asking that we might be used to share God's love with them. and finally faith in jesus come back to that that's the key to this passage when i started reading this uh, at the beginning of this week i was kind of thinking well it's 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 an account of a healing the guy wants his servant healed and verse 10 the servant is healed hallelujah but actually that almost comes as a postscript to this encounter That's not the main deal. Of course Jesus heals. Of course Jesus works in miraculous ways, even today. But that's not the main thing. Jesus is the key. Faith in him. Following him. Serving him. We can't change people. We can't bludgeon people into the kingdom of heaven. But we can love them. We can intercede for them. We can do stuff that's practical for them. But we also need to entrust them into Jesus' hands. And if there's something miraculous happens, please, Lord, let it be. Then that is wonderful. But that's glory to God, not glory to me, or glory to you. But we need to have faith, like the centurion, seeing the authority that Jesus has. Very challenging statement I I came across this week by a lady called Nancy Gibbs. Very simple. Says this For the truly faithful, no miracle is necessary. For those who doubt, no miracle is sufficient. For the truly faithful, no miracle is necessary. Coming back to that thing, faith is not dependent on circumstances. But for those who doubt, no miracle is sufficient. Nothing will convince a doubter but that they would take a step of faith. So, may it be that we see the miraculous happen. May it be that we see lives touched and lives changed miraculously. But may we remain and grow in faith in the God who loves us, in the God who loved this world so much that he gave his Son. Let's just be quiet for a moment before we draw our service to a close.